This episode of Wanderlust Off The Page is brought to you by Siwi, Europe's largest photo company with over 50 years of experience in photo services and online printing. Siwi delivers millions of personalised photo products each year, including the award-winning Siwi Photo Book. The brand has over 9,000 five-star reviews and can help you to relive your travel memories. As well as the photo book, you can create wall art, jigsaws, calendars and much more with Siwi. To learn more and to receive an exclusive 25% discount on all Siwi products when you spend £30, visit siwi.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's c-e-w-e.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. T's and C's apply. Now, let's get on with the show. everyone and welcome to the third series of the Wanderlust Off The Page podcast, taking you further into the stories of each issue of the magazine. We will be talking to travel experts, including your favourite travel writers. I'm Lynn Hughes, founding editor of Wanderlust. And I'm Rosie Fitzgerald, special features editor at Wanderlust. We'll be uncovering lesser-known places from all across the world, from the sounds of vibrant Louisiana in the USA to undiscovered parts of the Amazon rainforest and so much more in between. Now, if you're new to Wanderlust, here's what you need to know. Wanderlust is the UK's leading independent travel magazine, which has been taking the road less travel since 1993. We've won numerous awards along the way and to this day we continue to inspire our audience of curious travellers with each issue of our magazine as well as our website. Both of these are bursting with off-the-beaten-track experiences as some of the world's most exciting destinations, both near and far. Responsible, conscious and sustainable travel is always at the very heart of everything that we cover. So do be sure to check us out by heading to wanderlustmagazine.com or become a Wanderlust Club member and join our community of serious travellers for just £35 a year. That's about 50 bucks. This will get you six beautiful collectible issues, exclusive member-only competitions and events, access to our entire online archive back to 2010, plus heaps of other benefits too. And of course, be sure to hit that subscribe button on the Wanderlust Off The Page podcast as well. Today's episode truly lives up to Wanderlust's mantra of taking you off the beaten path, and I just can't wait for you to hear this episode of a truly undiscovered part of the world. We hope you enjoy. Today, we want to get you in the festive spirit, and how better to do that than to head to Christmas Island. And we're not making it up. This island does actually exist. It's a remote outpost found in the Indian Ocean. And rather than reindeers and snow and Santa, it's home to millions of giant red crabs. That's right. Each autumn, these red crabs put on a rather spectacular display as they make their way from the forest to the ocean, as our guests will tell us about in more detail today. And that special guest is Martin Symington, a long-time Wanderlust friend and contributor who's been lucky enough to visit this little-known island and to experience this crustacean migration firsthand. But it's not just crabs Martin will be talking about. In conversation with another Wanderlust friend and writer, Ara Miller, the pair will discuss the bounty of wildlife found on Christmas Island. This really is an intriguing and fascinating episode. So enjoy. 
At first, the fork-tailed shapes reminded me of pterodactyls gliding low over the rainforest with huge wings outstretched. Soon the birds were zooming on the ocean squalls like jets, just feet above my cliffside lookout point. Repeatedly, they tore at the tails of red-footed boobies, causing the smaller birds to drop the fish from their bills, which these hovering heisters then caught mid-flight. Why swim or dive for food when you will evolve perfectly to steal other creatures' prey? It was Charles Darwin who first posited that remote islands gave rise to a greater number of endemic creatures. And while he never found his way to Christmas Island, he would have discovered a rare muse in this dog-shaped outpost in the Indian Ocean. Its isolation is compounded by the fact that it went unsettled until the late 1880s, a feat in itself. It didn't even have a name until a passing English sea captain christened the volcanic speck in 1643 on 25th December. Hi, Martin. Welcome to the show. I absolutely love this article. It's Christmas time. I don't know about you, but my tree went up actually yesterday in the house. It's all covered in lights. We're feeling very Christmassy. And Christmas Island is somewhere I've always wanted to visit, but it's not the North Pole, as many people might imagine. It's incredibly different to that, but also incredibly wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, Christmas Island, as you say, is nowhere near anywhere normally associated with Christmas. It's actually in the Indian Ocean, over on the east side of the Indian Ocean. It's about 375 kilometers south of Java, which is the nearest land. There's nothing nearer at all in any direction. That, so this truly is one of the most isolated places on Earth. I always think that really remote places like that have a kind of special feeling. What was it like sort of looking out across that ocean? Did it feel remote to you? Well, it absolutely did. And its very remoteness was what I found so alluring about the place in the first place. So yes, to actually go out there to this tiny little speck in the Indian Ocean and find out what endemic species were there and the extraordinary history of this place. It was, yeah, it was one of those travel experiences which, you know, make you really excited. It's one of those sort of yeah, moment before going out there, it's not being able to uh, sleep at night like a kid before uh, Christmas. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. And there is an interesting history, isn't there? Because there's no indigenous population. What is some of the history and when was it settled? Well, incredibly late. There's, as you say, no indigenous population at all. There are vague, rather undocumented reports of early sightings from the 17th century onwards. It was finally given a name in 1643, Christmas Island. And there are a few instances of shipwrecks, and we'll get to that later, of people who washed up there. But no, it wasn't finally settled until 1885. And the reason it was settled was that some uh, British prospectors had found large reserves of phosphates there. So they decided to go and mine it. It was an economic imperative to settle it when they finally did get there. And did you find any of that history there? I know that one of the major draws for people is, of course, the amazing wildlife, which we're going to talk about in a second. But did you find any of that kind of colonial era history while you were there too? Well, absolutely. I mean, the whole makeup of the place as far as the human population is absolutely a consequence of this. Because the British, for whom it became a colonial outpost, brought in indentured labourers from China and Malaysia, or Malaya as it then was, and their descendants make up the great majority of the population at the moment. So about 
20% of the population are Australians. They call themselves Europeans. But the rest of them are split between the Chinese, who are one community, and the Malays, who are another. So, yes, we've got really three distinctive ethnic groups living on the island today as a, as a consequence of that colonial history. It must be a really fascinating clash of cultures for that, which you touch upon in the article. What was that like? Well, it was intriguing. As I said, I originally went there because I was so drawn to the wildlife there. But to find these three distinct ethnic groups living very harmoniously together, but nevertheless separately in their own communities, was extraordinary. And it wasn't something I'd been expecting when I arrived. Now, you mentioned the mining and the discovery of phosphates was kind of the reason why the island was originally settled. Does that still go on in the same way or is kind of ecotourism, you know, gradually becoming the more major driving force of the economy? Well, yes, the latter. So, yes, it's very much still going on and it's still being mined. However, it is being done decreasingly. And the talk of the town, when one looks at the future of this island, is that in the end and in the foreseeable future, this mining of phosphates will come to an end and the ecotourism will be the main source of um, income and therefore the impetus to preserve the incredible wildlife and natural environment which this island has. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that Wanderlust readers are all about. And certainly Wanderlust as a magazine is all about, you know, promoting these really remote, off the beaten track destinations that, you know, people may not necessarily consider as their first place that they would go on holiday, but are really exceptional and also contribute in a positive way to that island. So I think that that's, you know, kind of very much into that Wanderlust ethos. But tell me about the town, you know, the main town here, Flying Fish Cove. I love that name. What was it like? That's where you started, right? Well, first off, don't expect a lot of flying fish because the name of the town is actually taken from a British prospecting ship which called in there. So uh, the first thing you see is this enormous cantilevered crane and that is the direct link with the reason for it being settled in the first place. But after that, you see Taoist temples, which are the focal points for the Chinese community. And then there's a domed mosque from which the Muezzin echoes out five times a day, which obviously serves the Malay population who are Muslims. There's also a church. So there we are, three main places of worship, which are the points of cultural reference. And there's also, overlooking the town, a big mansion, uh, still called colloquially Buck House, which is where the British governor used to hold court when it was still a British colony. It's easy to imagine him there sitting on his veranda, sipping a gin and tonic in decades gone by. But in actual fact, it's not used for that anymore. It's now a museum. And at the moment, the main exhibition there is one that brings the pollution of the oceans to the fore. Sad that it has to, but the thing that really struck me was this amazing tree, which has been built out of jetsam, washed up on the beaches of Christmas Island. Things like toothbrushes and flip-flops and bags and things like that. Human debris, which as we know, doesn't break down and pollutes oceans everywhere. And yes, this beautiful tree, which has been created out of them, does bring it home to us that use of plastics and how they pollute the ocean is something that we have to be very aware of. 
Yeah, you paint a beautiful picture of that in the article too. It just sounds like the most remarkable Christmas tree on the planet. But then as you say, actually, there's this deeper message behind it, which is so important, particularly for remote islands affected by climate change. And, you know, I'm curious, how many people are in the town? You know, what's the size of it? Is it the sort of place where you kind of feel ingratiated into the community when you visit? Because obviously there's not a huge influx of of tourists yet. What's it like and what's the food like? You know, what's the experience like of staying there? Well, first of all, it's a very small place. The total population, human population, that is, of Christmas Island is about 2,000. And of those, almost all of them live in or very near to Flying Fish Cove. It does divide into areas where the three different ethnic groups tend to live. It's not absolute, but as a general rule, there are three main quarters. There are restaurants, and as you might expect, there are... Malay restaurants where you can eat Malaysian food, Chinese restaurants, and also some Aussie pubs where you can get fish and chips. Not necessarily flying fish and chips, but... You wouldn't want those fish flying off your plate, would you? Unless they're just jumping into your mouth. Yeah, (laughs) quite. I love that, though, for a small island to have that kind of diversity of food choice. It's pretty exceptional. Of course, the seafood must be incredible as well. Yeah, the very best things you'll eat there is the fish because pretty much everything else is imported from Australia because uh, the island is actually Australian. Well, you mentioned there's only a few thousand humans living there, but there's many thousand times more of other species living there, which is, of course, the main draw for people coming there, the incredible bird life and wildlife, and one of the most spectacular wildlife experiences that you'll probably have, and one of the most unusual too. So in the article, you talk about getting in this battered, salt-encrusted four-wheel drive to explore the remote reaches of the island. I love that picture you paint of jumping into the four-wheel drive. And we're going to hear about some of those incredible sights that you saw along the way right now. I followed trails leading to concealed beaches named after the wives of former governors and administrators, such as Ethel and Winifred. An hour's hike from the nearest drivable path I reached Dolly Beach. Its cove, cradled by jungle drape cliffs, was bisected by freshwater streams and swept with the tractor-like flipper tracks of nesting sea turtles. I walked across fine sand that was curiously squeaky underfoot and strewn with driftwood and coconuts. Here I lay on the shore with my feet in the surf, pondering the plight of five Dutch sailors shipwrecked here in 1855. With an abundance of seafood, coconuts, and wild fruit washed down with fresh spring water, the castaways lived here for a year before being rescued. Why, I wondered, would they ever have wanted to see a windmill or a clog again? Why indeed? I've got this, I've got this picture of the Dutch sail, like a ship coming in and they're just like, we're okay. Let's keep going. We're fine. You know, if you could be castaway anywhere and who doesn't love a castaway story, it would be here, right? This sounds like the perfect place to be stranded. Well, I mean, I found it something that I could imagine doing. I mean, obviously, perhaps the reality of having left families behind might have made it feel a bit different. But I tell you, when I was lying there with my feet in the surf, And amazingly, even though it's a tiny island, only 12 kilometers long, the fact that it had taken me so long to get there and it was so inaccessible somehow made Christmas Island feel so much bigger than it actually was. And it really did feel an absolutely deserted and isolated place. So, yeah, it was just extraordinary to think of that band of 
castaways. And, you know, if I'm ever invited on Desert Island Discs, I'll be able to, you know, steal a march on other interviewees because I've actually been able to imagine the circumstance lying there. Well, what would be your choice of tune then? Like, if you could bring one album then to Christmas Island, would it be Christmas songs or would you choose something else? Oh, God, it probably, I'd probably have to say Christmas carols, yes. <laughs> it would have to be, wouldn't it? You'd get so sick on, of them by else, the end of it. What else am I going to say? <laughs> You'd be like, why did I choose the Christmas Carol album? I'm stuck here for a year, but uh, well, I don't think you'd Well, you might mad. just say, look, this is so idyllic, it's just like Christmas Day is every day. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. Now, one of the best things about travel is that so often the memories you create last for a lifetime, don't they? And one of the best things about our sponsors, Siwi, is that they can help us to relive those special travel memories and keep them all in one place in a lovely photo book that you can look back on time and time again. Have you got any special travel memories, Lynn, that you like to return to? Oh, absolutely. I'm sitting here surrounded by photo albums showing all my travels from over the years, including a road trip through New Zealand from north to south, face-to-face encounters with gorillas in Central Africa. It really brings it all back to me. And particularly when you look back, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. And so actually, one of my resolutions for next year is I'm going to make photo books of some of the most memorable trips I've been on because it really does help you relive those experiences and memories, doesn't it? Yeah, it really, really does. And a good thing about Seaweed Lynn, with a busy schedule like yours, it's really easy to use. You can put all those photos in really easily and, and make it look exactly how you want to. So, yeah, definitely a great way to preserve those travel memories there. And, of course, a photo book makes a great present for a loved one as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. If you've got someone in your life that loves travel... You can get them calendars, you can get them photo books, all kinds of different creative gifts with seaweed. So whichever travel memories you would like to savour, whether it's a recent trip or your first ever adventure, a seaweed photo book makes for the perfect keepsake. Be sure to head over to their website and make the most of their exclusive offer and save 25% on all seaweed products when you spend £30. So for all the details and the T's and C's, go to seaweed.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's C-E-W-E.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. Right, now let's get back to the show. And it does sound idyllic and you described the National Park so well. What were some of the other highlights that you found there? Well, one of the things was going down into these dales, as they're called, little ravines between limestone cliffs and finding these extraordinary waterfalls you could stand over and just feel the natural torrent plummeting down onto you, lovely cool water. And also finding that behind these waterfalls, there were these sort of feathery structures which looked incredibly delicate. You almost didn't dare touch them. But in actual fact, they were rock hard to touch. And these were deposits that just built up on the side of the rock over, I suppose, millions of years. Yeah, and the environment itself sounds wonderful. And you write about it so beautifully too, like Hughesdale Waterfall, you describe as a deep depression in an enchanted forest where exquisite natural rimstone pools have formed under the torrent of a waterfall. I love that description and I'm not going to spoil any of the rest for listeners. You'll have to check out the magazine or website to read more. But the real highlight, the bit that really got me going reading this article was about one of the rarest and most incredible 
wildlife experiences on the planet. I'm talking about the red crabs. What on earth is that experience all about? Oh, the red crabs. I mean, the red crabs are the absolutely most extraordinary wildlife phenomenon I have ever come across. On this island, there are, nobody knows for sure, there are about 50 million of these great big bright red crabs. There's so much mystery about these crabs. For example, no one has been able to work out why these endemic Christmas Island red crabs are there. Nobody knows why. They're intense colour. Nobody knows what advantage is given to these creatures by having their extraordinary bright red intense colour in evolutionary terms. And most of all, nobody can understand how they are able to be attuned to so many parts of the climactic conditions coming together because every year, and it's not the same every year because it's a coming together of climate and tide, land crabs will leave their burrows in the centre of the island and they'll all, or all females that is, will make their way down in a torrent of red crab down to the beaches where they lay their eggs in the ocean and then they scuttle back. And then the larvae hatch in the ocean and about three to four weeks after they were laid, they come back onto the land, metamorphize into land crabs and back they go up into the interior of the island and there they scuttle around for the remainder of the year until all the females do the same again the following year. And no biologist or zoologist has yet been able to work out exactly when it's going to happen. It's a mystery. The crab mad world is always trying to coincide their visits with this mass migration, which incidentally David Attenborough has made a film about and, and reckons as one of the great wildlife phenomena of the world. But you take your potluck because the knowledge these crabs have is way beyond anything that we humans have managed to work out. Yeah, it's one of those experiences when you hear about it, it kind of makes you marvel and wonder at the natural world. Like, how do they have that close connection to the weather and the environment and the ecosystem? Like, how does that change every year? It's just, it's a mystery, isn't it? It is a mystery. And this is one of the really exciting things about a place like this with its endemic species. They are still mysteries. There's so much that humans still don't know about them. And I say still don't know. It's quite possible that we'll never know, particularly if we find that we have to retreat from our close association with these creatures just to allow them to develop with less, not more, human intervention. That's certainly something that uh, I was getting a feel from talking to some environmentalists while I was there. I love that, though, don't you? There's some things that we don't know about and we may never know about, and there's just mystery still. I absolutely love that. Yeah, me too. But don't forget, it's not only the, the red crabs which you find there. There are about 20 endemic species of crab on the island. And one of these is the extraordinary robber crab. Not nearly as common as the red crabs. You don't see nearly as many of them around. But in some ways, there are even more incredible creatures. Because these are enormous great big things. Their main body of the robber crab, it's of a bluish kind of colour in contrast with the more common species, and the main body is about the size of a football. Imagine that. And then with legs extending out to about a metre. So they're huge, great big things. And they actually look quite threatening, but they're not. You're not going to uh, come to any harm from them. But you can watch them and you'll see these creatures climbing palm trees 
and picking coconuts and fruit, which they bring down. They got their name, incidentally, because they're very, very curious and attracted to shiny things. And so they do nick stuff from you. It's not unheard of to hear of tourists having their cameras stolen by robber crabs. And they even find their way into towns sometimes. So people keep their windows closed because, you know, it's not so far-fetched that a robber crab might crawl in through your window, help itself to something off your kitchen table, and then make off. <laughs> I love that. Really? I, I couldn't imagine. What's that like, right? You wake up in the middle of the night for a glass of water and you come in and there's some giant robber crabs stealing your iPhone or something like that. It wasn't quite scary seeing them. I mean, at first I was a bit wary of them because they are so huge. But, you know, after a bit, I got quite used to be able to walk up quite close to them. And in actual fact, that did have the effect of causing them to actually keep their distance a little bit. It's not as if they're waiting for a cuddle. <laughs> yeah, don't cuddle the giant crabs. That's tip number one when visiting Christmas Island. But I love this idea that they climb trees. I mean, that must be so rare. How on earth did they suddenly like, you know what, guys, let's just try it. Let's go up there and see what we can find. I mean, it's really strange behavior, isn't it? It is. And if you're asking me how it happens, I don't know any more than anybody else knows. And that's one of the wonders of this place. You just have to look and take it in and just go, wow. Some things you can try and understand. Some things it's better just to observe and understand that perhaps we will never understand. Well said. And it sounds like for birders too, like if you're a birder, this is just an incredible place to visit. Oh, yeah. I mean, birding is a huge part of the attraction. And of course, birders don't have to try and time their visits according to an annual phenomenon like the, the, the crab migration. But no, what gets birders really excited is that there are several endemic species. You know, birders are like, if you can find a bird which is found nowhere else in the world, then they'll be there. Those Christmas Island frigate birds, which I described earlier, that's one idea. Another endemic species which attracts birders from all over the world is the golden boson, which is an extraordinary creature. It's not terribly common, but I did see a couple of them when I was there with these great long tails. And as they fly over the canopy of the rainforest, they're a sight that I've never seen anything like before, just uh, gliding and coming to roost somewhere on a branch in solitary grandeur. It sounds like such a magical place. You get that feeling of remoteness, which is so rare in today's world. You have the incredible wildlife and birds. You got 50 million red crabs. If you time it right, you might just see one of the greatest wildlife spectacles on earth. And what's really profound about your article too and inspiring is that you end with a sense of hope. You know, climate change is particularly affecting islands and island cultures, you know, conservation is a big problem. You know, it began with mining, but yet you end the article with a rare sense of hope for the future. And we're going to finish with a passage about that now. Later that night, in the company of a few other islanders, we sipped sundowners while darkness fell on Flyingfish Cove and the call of the Nwezin echoed across the water. A school of spinner dolphins was in the harbour and we watched a flying fox unhinge itself from a palm and float into the gloaming. The conversation turned to Christmas Island's future and everybody agreed that the long-term survival of the island and its residents, both human and animal alike, lay in ecotourism, in a world where people and the environment 
are often in conflict, it was uplifting to hear that on this far-flung and little-known speck, the reverse may be true. Christmas Island was named 379 years ago, but its new accessibility presents us with an exciting gift waiting to be unwrapped by a whole new wave of visitors. And this time, we won't take it for granted. Well, you're a beautiful writer, Martin. I loved reading the article, as I said, and I urge everyone to go and check it out at wanderlust.co.uk. You've got a bunch of other stuff up there. There's some incredible images too. But before we go, what are some of your tips? Like who, what kind of traveler would visit and what are your tips for those people that do want to visit? Well, first of all, you've got to be prepared to travel a very long way. Although it must be said that there is a new accessibility because until fairly recently, the only way for anybody to get to Christmas Island was via Perth in Australia. Now there is a weekly flight from Jakarta. It only takes an hour or so from Jakarta, but you have to stay at least a week because there's only one flight a week and you have to be patient about everything because this is an island which moves at its own pace. Patience in all things is a necessity, but it's also the very quality which will allow the island to thrive if its future is indeed going to be ecotourism and not the mining of phosphates. You know, actually, it sounds like it could be a great combination with visiting Indonesia, which of course is an incredible country in its own right. Um, Maybe that would make a kind of bigger adventure itinerary that you could combine together. And while planning something like this, what time of year would you recommend? Did you stay in any guest houses or hotels or guides that you would recommend? I stayed in one of the few very simple guest houses that there are in Flying Fish Cove. In terms of what time of year to go, well, there are really only two seasons. There are really only two seasons. The climate is equatorial, so hot year round. There is a rainy season, which more or less corresponds to our winter. And this is also the season in which the great crowd migration takes place. And then there's a drier season, which is from about June through to October. What I would say (laughs) is that If you are hell-bent on seeing the crab migration, then you will have to go for several weeks because it is impossible to determine exactly when it's going to happen. But that said, even though the crab migration is one of these great wildlife phenomena of the world, you still see these crabs in huge numbers absolutely everywhere. They're all over the place. Don't forget, it's a small island and there are about... 45 to 50 million of them. So they are absolutely everywhere. They're crawling through the rainforest. They're on the roads. If you are driving, you've got to be very careful not to crunch a few crabs underfoot. And you even see them coming into the settlements. People find them in their gardens in Flying Fish Cove. As we've already said, the robber crabs too can find themselves in the settlements to sometimes slightly less welcome effect. But I would say go at any time of the year because both the rainy and the dry season has its attractions. And where can people connect with you if they want to read more of your amazing writing and and hear about some more of your adventures? Well, I have a homepage on the Wanderlust site with a collection of articles which I've written over the years. So if anybody would like to make their way to that site and read any of my other work, then I would be more than flattered. 
And I highly recommend doing that. Wanderlust.co.uk, of course. And as well as Martin's work, there's a range of amazing articles about other remote places around the world. And you can check out another holiday-themed island, which has nothing to do with the holiday. It's named after Easter Island, where we interviewed Shafiq Manji on a previous episode. That's a great one, too. Well, thank you so much, Martin. This has been great. You know, this is a great Christmas episode, Christmas Island. I know what I'm asking for Christmas. I'm asking for some red crabs and some flying fish. I think I might just get that from Santa if I'm nice. But if I'm naughty, maybe he'll send around some of those robber crabs to steal my shiny presents from under the tree. So thank you so much. It's been I, wonderful. I was just, just going to say, Aaron, if, if, you're, if you're naughty, Santa brings you some phosphate to eat. <laughs> that's right yeah let's hope let's hope that doesn't happen cheers Martin thank you so much I look forward to catching up with you again soon thank you Aaron nice talking to you too well that just about wraps up our time here today thank you all so much for listening please remember to hit that follow button and subscribe wherever you get your shows Make sure you come back for more. We've got plenty more incredible travel stories coming up and we just can't wait to share them with you. Yeah, thanks again. We'll see you next time. This episode of Wanderlust Off The Page is brought to you by Siwi, Europe's largest photo company with over 50 years of experience in photo services and online printing. Siri delivers millions of personalised photo products each year, including the award-winning Siri Photo Book. The brand has over 900 five-star reviews and can help you to relive your travel memories. As well as a photo book, you can create wall art, jigsaws, calendars and so much more with Siri. So to learn more and to receive an exclusive 25% discount on all Siri products when you spend £30, visit siri.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's c-e-w-e.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. T's and C's apply. Wanderlust Off The Page was presented by Lynn Hughes and Rosie Fitzgerald. The interviewer was Aaron Miller and the show was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. 